0: James chapter 3. Any questions, though, from last time on taming the tongue and what that looks like? Anything come up during the week? It would, probably the best comment um, was that the Eucharist touches your tongue, and so it sanctifies your tongue, and it gives you a sanctified word to speak. That was probably one of the most helpful comments last week. Uh, but any, any thoughts or uh, questions from last time? Yeah. Yeah, right. You'll never do that again. <laughs> but she's not here today. Oh, good. <laughs> Yeah, well, She's not here this week. <laughs> <laughs> but last week, uh, a couple times you said some stuff uh, about how we had to think about uh, we and you especially had to think about our judgment. Yeah. So that sounded a little confusing. Possibly, Have a smoke. We'll be back in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, good. I do remember saying those things. So the qu so your question is. How can I say it's not about you and then last week say it's about you? Right? Okay, good. Um, It's not about you, it's about Jesus. However, uh, last week's discussion, I think, and and maybe this wasn't wasn't very clear, but we'll look at it again. Um, The whole discussion was based upon the presupposition that you and Jesus are one flesh. So in and of yourself, we never talk about you. But when you're joined with Jesus, we can then begin to talk about you because it's not talking about you, it's actually talking about Jesus. So the presupposition is, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. However, that's point A. Point B is, you and Jesus are one flesh. Therefore, point C is, we can talk about you, and James does, because in talking about you, he's really talking about Jesus. That makes sense? That was a good dodge, huh? Yeah. I should have been a lawyer. And, uh, talk, in talking about you, we're talking about Jesus. so we never talk about you alone, we always talk about Christ, but there are times in the Christian's life um, where questions of conduct or speech or action or life come up, and in those when we're talking about how to live within the Christian life, you've got to remember all of that is all that begins with Jesus continues with Jesus and ends with Jesus so we're just simply telling you how to live as one who is in contact with the flesh of Christ. And so Ephesians 5, I gave you Ephesians 5 last week. He's so overtaken you, not in that he's destroyed you, but so overtaken you that it's Christ who lives and not you, that we actually can talk about what you say because we're talking about Jesus. That makes sense? When we talk about what, how you live, we're not talking about the sinner side or the bad feel side. We're talking about the good feel side, the Christological side the side that's joined to Jesus, and everything that that fill does is motiva- motivated by the flesh of Christ. Okay? Is that okay? All right, good. Yes? Yeah? Eat the body, blood. What page is that on? Fourteen. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, especially, you know, the, the phrase, you are what you eat, finds its origin in the sacramental life. Um, so you truly are what you eat. And it's not as though you transform Christ, but Christ, in giving his body and blood to you, transforms you into himself. Okay? So when you leave the altar, this is Luther's bit from a few weeks ago where uh, he said something to the effect of. Jesus gives you all of himself, and that's why I think, to a certain extent, the Roman church gets it right in their liturgy, where they say, they don't just talk about body and blood, you know, uh, if you're an evangelical, you talk about bread and wine, and somehow a spiritual, you know, rising of your soul up to the presence of Christ, so you could say there's a real presence, Jesus is there with his spirit, Lutherans often talk just about body and blood, Rome, I think, gets it right, because they talk about the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus all present in the Eucharist. And and just to show you that that is a Lutheran idea, in the proper preface for the Ascension, you've heard me say this a 100 times, in the proper preface for the Ascension, it begins um, that he might make us partakers of his divine nature. Now the proper preface, you know, is a reference first and foremost to the Eucharist. So in consuming his body and his blood, you actually are made partakers of his most divine life, right? And partaking in the scriptures means um, koinonia, communion, okay? Uh, St. Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, or the body of Christ? And the Greek word there is koinonia, it's a communion, meaning he gives you all of himself, and you give him all of yourself. There's this great exchange, this is Luther's bit, okay? So, you're exactly right. And that then leads to James' question, how can you talk about you, yourself, we're still not talking about ourselves. We're talking about Jesus. Okay, what else? Anything else from last week? All right, look at your outline then. Let's keep moving. This is actually, you know, the way James lays this whole thing out is very helpful. You remember that the epistles primarily, but in a sense the gospels as well, but primarily the epistles are just are just sermons. Um, you especially see this in the epistle to the Hebrews where it has those, um, in the Greek it's called a hortatory conjunctive, or subjunctive, where it says uh, let us ascend, let us rise, and it ends by saying let us come to the altar. So there's this, there's this notion that these, epi- that these epistles are just long sermons drawing people um, you know, from confession, absolution, the reading of the gospel, up to the altar, and James is really no different. So he continues on from last week where he talks about the taming of the tongue, This week, to tell you exactly what you should be saying. You've got to read this as a sermon. Don't read this as chapters or verses. Mm -hmm. It's a sermon. Okay? So, but let's let's just remember where we've been. Tending Christ. That's the most important thing. Pastor Bruzek led us through that, you know, six, seven, eight, nine weeks ago. And you remember we talked all about the fullness of Christ. There is one Christ who speaks one word, who does one work, who seeks to redeem his one creation. Heaven on earth and heaven in Heaven. But along those lines, there's also the fullness of the Christian. There's one Christian who's saved by one redemption, justification and sanctification. And he is redeemed to live one life, a life of faith and a life of works. So if you tend Christ, then you have to tend the application of Christ. Probably one of the best things said, I think Pastor Bruzek said it, that Jesus is not the gospel. That's very important. Jesus in and of himself is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus applied. So while we tend Christology and we tend the Christian, it means nothing unless that tending actually looks at the way in which Jesus is applied. So tending the application of Christ, how it all comes together for us, that's incorporation, in us, participation, and through us, that's the divine life. Jesus saves by delivering himself to us through his gifts. And you see that, you know, uh, that's, that's strangely clear today in the way that Jesus saves the sheep with his voice. So the prayer of the church said, you know, lead us with your living voice, your viva vox. Even with his voice, he's delivering himself, and he's calling you to salvation. Jesus saves by delivering himself to us through his gifts. His gifts draw us into union with his own sacred flesh. Okay? To be in contact with the body of Christ. And here I'm talking not first and foremost about um, what in Latin is called the corpus mysticum, the mystical body, the church. Here I'm talking primarily about the Jesus who walks and talks and touches people. At the end of the day, you should say, is there really a difference? So look around the room and ask yourself, is there a difference? There shouldn't be. But Jesus draws us into union with his own sacred flesh. This is, this is very clear, especially in the widow's son at Nain. You have this dead boy. And in the ancient world, you know, to be dead um, was to have the absence of holiness or the absence of sanctity. And Jesus, of course, is holiness incarnate. And you remember how the dead boy, dead boy rises. Not only does he speak to him, young man, I say to you, arise, but he says he also touches the young boy. So holiness comes in contact with unholiness each and every week, and in coming in contact with you, he delivers all he's got. Union with Jesus means receiving all he's got and being enlivened to do as he does. He doesn't give you himself to be a static human being. He gives you himself to do as he does. And living within that enlivenedness is actually evidence of faith. If you are living the life that Christ has called you to live, it is evidence to Jesus and it is evidence to the world that you are one who has the faith of Christ. Okay? Tending Christ, tending the Christian, tending the application of Christ to us, and then last week, tending the embodiment of Christ. Last week it was all about taming your tongue. A few things to remember. What goes for pastors should naturally go for parishioners, at least in terms of the normal rhythm of the Christian life. I was stunned. And I know some of, you know, some of it was a joke. Where's, is Kovic here? Dan Kovic saying, I said, what are some of the advantages of being a pastor? And he said, great pay. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Um, you know, some of that is funny, but some of it is very, very serious and very sincere. Um, the whole idea that pastors spend most of their day in prayer while it would be ideal, um, isn't actually what happens. So I think there's this strange understanding of how pastors live, but what you need to remember is, in terms of the normal rhythm of the Christian life, there is no distinction between pastor and parishioner. And this is made abundantly clear in Ephesians 5, the head and the body. There is distinction. Okay? There is distinction. We are not the same. But in terms of functioning as a human being, terms of functioning as the body of Christ, many of the things which you and I do will be very, very, very similar. What goes for pastors should also go for you. The driving force behind a congregation is its tongue. Some tongues have been foot, put, foot, put, foot book, put. 1 Timothy 1.12. You remember this, St. Paul rejoices in the fact that he has been put. And, uh, and last week, you remember, we talked about how for James, the tongue is first and foremost the tongue of the preacher, and I even told you that you know Saint John Chrysostom was such a good preacher; they called him Golden Mouth or Golden Tongue. So, first and foremost, the tongue of the congregation is the pastor. Some tongues have been put; however, some tongues have put themselves, and that would be you all, folks who are in every conversation. I hope you thought about that last week. There are some folks who. You know when there's, you know, there's a group of people chatting and you're worried about what might be said? There's one person who's in every one of those groups or two people. Who's in. Every, those are tongues who have put themselves. That's not the work of Christ. The tongue directly impacts or directly affects the health of the body. The tongue can speak the truth regardless of how difficult it may be to hear. If your doctor says to you, you have cancer, you shouldn't get all over him and say, tame your tongue. Okay? It's the truth. It may not be easy to hear, but it needs to be said. However, the tongue can also speak lies, gossip, slander, words full of hate. And you remember from last week, it was these sorts of things which James is warning us against. When the tongue is used for sin, like a wildfire, it can set a community ablaze, okay? Like a wildfire, it can set a community ablaze. And, and actually, the opposite is true. When the tongue is used for good, it can set a community ablaze. I mean, just look at, well, um, you know, this is, this is kind of the driving force behind much of, which the, of what the synod is doing right now. Ablaze, there's something to that, right? It can set a community ablaze, even when it's used for good. The irony, though, and this is very important, the irony about the tongue is that the tongue controls the body. If you are a tongue in this congregation, you control this community. A pastor who is a tongue can control a community. And yet, it cannot itself be controlled. James says, if you wouldn't wouldn't sin with the tongue, you would be a perfect human being. He gives you the example of, of, of a bit in a horse's mouth. Anybody watch the Kentucky Derby? How many you watched wife, wife Swap last week? Raise your hands. That was homework. Come on. No one watched it. Deadliest Catch? Oh, OK, good. See? All right. I had dinner with an elder, actually drinks with an elder, on Thursday night. And he said, I love Deadliest Catch. So uh, there some converts in the group. Um, But the bit, you know, controls the body of the animal. In In a very similar way, the tongue controls the body or the church. And as James said, this sort of double tongue, blessing God and cursing others, you see this all the time, is a theological discrepancy which leads to sin. And sin leads to broken community, And broken community leads to chaos, and chaos leads us back to where we were before the Lord used his tongue to speak a gospel-ordering word, let there be light. Okay? So, when the tongue runs rampant, we're back to where we were before the Lord ordered this universe. And chaos is sin. Order is of the gospel. Okay? So that's all from last week. This week, then, a continuation of tongue talk. He's going to tell you now how best to use your tongue. And again, you have the text there probably on page 5, I think. Yeah, right at the bottom. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. So you notice he's talking about speech. So speech and conduct go hand in hand. You can't say, I said that, but I meant this, or I said that, but I live this way. What you say is the same as what you do. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom. Sophia. Wisdom in the scriptures, you remember, is not about intelligence or common sense. This is the way pagans think in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians especially. Wisdom is about what you know. That's not the way it is with Jesus. Wisdom is not about intelligence or common sense. Or as Scaer says, it is not enough to be intellectually capable as James readers claim to be. They all thought they were the smartest guy in the room. The works of wisdom must be expressed in works of meekness. Christological attribute. And he then cites for you, Scare does, the Beatitudes. So wisdom, stop thinking that wisdom is about intelligence. Or that wisdom is somehow about common sense. Wisdom is Christ who is wisdom personified. And so wisdom is truth in the way of him who is truth incarnate. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Wisdom and truth go hand in hand. And truth, next page, is best expressed in meekness. This is very important. Truth is best expressed in meekness. Gently, quietly, and as Scare says, expecting nothing in return. How many of you, how many of you, uh, anyone read Touchstone magazine? I know you guys do. Yeah, Mr. Ford does there in the back. Touchstone Magazine is a great, uh, a great magazine that comes out, I think, once a month. And Patrick Henry Reardon is one of the editors. He was here a couple months ago to give a Saturday seminar. The lead article this month is all about telling the truth. Uh, and I was stunned by it as I, as I read it. it was, he, uh, and it was by, um, I think his last name is Hutchinson, who's one of the editors for Touchstone. He basically said, in the ancient world, people were accustomed to telling other folks the truth. That's why people are called heretics all the time. You're a heretic, that's wrong. You're a heretic, that's wrong. But he says we've lost that in our culture. We have no idea what it is to not only know the truth, but also to tell the truth. And he says the truth, of course, I think he even cites James, must be done gently and respectfully. But he says the time for telling the truth is back. Okay, We're so caught up in a culture where no one wants to give you an honest opinion. No, not even opinion. No one wants to give you the honest truth. Um, But that is not the way of Jesus. And sometimes we don't give the truth because the truth can hurt. uh, The truth can offend. I mean, Jesus is offensive. If you don't think Jesus is offensive, you must not listen to, you know, to what we confess every Sunday morning. I am by nature sinful and unclean. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. You know, in a sense, Jesus is very offensive, and sometimes the truth is offensive. You're a damn sinner, and so am I. However... The time for recognizing the truth and speaking the truth is back. But as James says, it's best done in meekness. Gently, quietly, and expecting nothing in return. Okay, So we need to tend that. Tend the truth and tend how we speak it. And he'll get to that in just a second. Wisdom and truth are deeply Christological and only appear when Jesus invades every aspect of our lives, drawing us out of ourselves towards self-effacing humility. It is not about you. Okay? It's not about you. When he does that in both speaking and doing then, then you can say you are truly wise. And so the question that James has for his congregation and the question that we need to ask ourselves every day Does our outward behavior, even, and especially, the use of our tongues, contradict what we publicly confess about the Christian life? And so, what we publicly confess about the Christ? James would say, are you living a lie? Okay? Does what you say contradict what you confess? So, the opposite side of wisdom now. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That actually in the Greek says, do not boast and be false against the truth, don't lie. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Okay? And jealousy here, as you know, can be, can be twofold. You can be jealous about a number of things. It can be envy over someone's achievements and their own advantages. And even in the church, that can be everything from their kids grew up and still go to church and mine don't. (laughs) Or they come to church every week and love it, and I come to church every week and don't love it. All the way to suspicion about someone's unfaithfulness in a relationship or a community. You know, if your son always thinks his girlfriend is cheating on him, she will call him a jealous boyfriend. Right? Same thing happens in the church. This shows itself, as you see there, in wanting what someone else has got, I want their life, or always questioning whether or not they've even got it. Pick your thing. Joy, life, happy marriage, obedient kids, relationship with Jesus, relationship with community. You're always saying, do they really have that? That's jealousy. And selfish ambition in the Greek is partisan and fractious spirit. If you're always choosing sides, and usually the wrong side, If you're always choosing sides and you're easily irritated, this might be you. And James says these things are not from above. They are not from above. Particularly, they are not from Christ, who drops down from the heavens as wisdom made flesh. Okay? Questions so far? Are you all okay? Remember, wisdom is about Jesus, and Jesus is about truth. Rather, says James, envy, suspicion, divisiveness, irritation. I mean, I, I was, as I was, I was writing those words, I was, you know, the scriptures talk about being cut to the heart. You're, yeah, I'm, I'm typing these out thinking, yeah, that's me. That's me. Divisiveness, yeah, that's me. Irritation, yeah, that's me. Lies, unfortunately, yeah, that happens. Jealousy and selfish ambition. This is just the way he describes who these people are. These things, he says, are worldly. Meaning, there's no external, objective reality from which to judge behavior. It's all about what you see right before you. It's always changing. It's utterly subjective. It's not Christ. It's unspiritual, which is the biblical way of talking about what's fleshly. It's all about you. And it's demonic. And as Scare says, people who do not share the divine perspective on life are under the control of Satan. You should be hearing here overtones of Luther's The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. It's striking. Luther hated the book of James, but he writes like James. Okay? He didn't like it. But especially on this point, worldly, unspiritual, and demonic, Luther just says The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Those are things the Christian was and is always in conflict with. So what does that do to a community? Verse 16, for, or maybe better, and, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You know, you can think about this congregation or congregations you belong to. Disorder in every vile practice. Um, That's all over the place. Sin, especially sin of the tongue, sin that is driven by jealousy and selfishness, that kind of sin brings chaos and confusion, formlessness, instability, disturbance and wicked and evil deeds, the things people do in the church. I never, I, you know, coming out of the seminary, you're never ready for that. It's amazing. And I'm not talking about this place. I'm talking about just the church in general. The things people do in the church. Um, when it all gets sorted out, it makes you actually believe that there's a God. But when it's not being sorted out, you actually believe that James might be right, okay? It brings chaos, confusion, formlessness, instability, disturbance, and wicked and evil deeds. The bottom line is this. Sin of the tongue shatters community. And it shatters community in such a way that it can only be described as utterly unnatural and therefore utterly anti-Eden. One of the most striking things in, in working through this text was that The word that James uses there for disorder as he describes a congregation who's been affected by sins of the tongue, the word that James uses there for disorder is exactly the same word that appears in Genesis 1, verse 2 in the Greek where it talks about the earth was formless and void. When there's chaos. You remember the first thing the Lord does. He creates all this stuff and it's chaotic. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So what does he do? He orders it. Chaos is of the law, ordering is of the the gospel. James picks the exact same word to describe the congregation who's been affected by a sinful tongue. He says that congregation is formless and void. It is disordered. So the question is, or the assertion by James is, if that's who you are, you're still running outside of Eden. And, and as I say, it's utterly unnatural. The Lord creates us to be ordered. He creates us to be community. Sin is not just missing the mark. Sin of the tongue is not just missing the mark. It's not just screwed up against one of the ten words. Sin is to be subhuman because it breaks relationship with Jesus, his, who is humanity par excellence. And when you break relationship with Jesus, you are subhuman, and in a sense you are utterly unnatural. And God forbid that a whole community works that way. That a whole community looks unnatural. That a whole community looks like it did in Genesis 1-1 before he begins to order creation. And this community, to whom James is writing, is all screwed up. He's saying you don't want to be like that. It's all about Eden. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his gospel ordering word. But, this is verse 17, buts in the scripture are very important, okay? But the wisdom from above is first pure, in the Greek, first true or holy. Then, you notice there's an order here, there's a rank here. First it's true, then it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, in the Greek, easily obeyed, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When it comes to wisdom, specifically Christological wisdom, that's the kind we're after. You guys are smart folks. It's not about that. It's about Jesus' wisdom. That which drops down from above. Certain things hold rank. True. And this is why the Touchstone article is so helpful. Go get it. You know, I'm sure the library has it, the May issue. Truth is the most important characteristic of one who is wise and speaks wisely. If you want to be considered wise, tell the truth. And truth creates peace, particularly when it is delivered gently and in such a way that it is easily heard and obeyed. You notice here that peace doesn't create truth, truth creates peace. And I think, I think and I've, I've heard this over the past few months, I think that's something that maybe we don't always understand. Where there's a push, especially in times of crisis, our natural reaction is to say, be nice to people. That's true. Be peaceful, be loving, be kind, be gentle. And somehow, some way, a community will be brought back to the truth. James is saying, no, 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 that's not the way it works. Tell the truth and do it gently and peaceably and in a kind way, and then community will be restored. Why? Because when truth comes in meekness, it is a gift and not a burden. It comes in mercy. It comes toward bearing good fruit. When it comes in meekness, it is a gift and not a burden as it shows no favoritism utterly objective and is spoken without hypocrisy the person who speaks the truth to you you should rejoice in people who tell you the truth I mean you want someone who tells you that's not right and that's right and good job and not so good and get this right next time you want someone who speaks the truth to you especially someone who does it without hypocrisy they themselves believe and confess what they are telling you to believe and confess and do I mean, you want this with your kids. You know, you tell your kids the truth because you want them to grow up to be folks who confess the truth themselves. It's the same thing in the church. And all of this is particularly important at this particular time in our life together. For our own community, we must remember that truth is of utmost importance and gentleness and love while impacting our delivery of the truth never trump the truth itself. Gentleness and love without the truth are really not gentleness and love at all. Love is only love when it's connected to the truth. If you love somebody apart from the truth, you're loving them in a lie. The truth is the most important thing. And for those who are not part of this community, and I actually think this is more important, this is... Two things struck me in the Gospel reading today. One is that Jesus goes out to find people who are not part of the sheepfold. The other thing that struck me was when Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. There is, um, you know, necessity may not be the right word, but there is a sense of urgency toward laying down his life because that is the way in which the Father loves him. It's the same thing with those who are outside. For those who are not part of this community, who are on a frantic search for something authentic, something real, something honest and true, void of hypocrisy, young folks and old folks too, not within these walls, can sniff that out a mile away. For those type of folks, we have the responsibility to be the kind of community that loves them the way that they need to be loved. And the way they need to be loved is by telling them the truth, being honest people, folks who embody wisdom because you embody Christ himself. All of this, incorporation and participation, every last bit of it is utterly sacramental. It begins with Jesus putting his name on you, it continues with him speaking his viva vox into your ear, and it ends as he gives you his Eucharist and sends you out the door to embody wisdom, to embody truth, to embody Christ Himself. That's what it's all about. That's how communities form. That's how community is sustained, and that's how new folks are brought in the door. I mean, something must be going right. I just saw the latest list of prospective new members: 101 people on the list. Now, that doesn't mean all of them are going to come through. However, those are people who have said, "I'd at least like to learn more about the class." Something must be happening. So where there's good, we need to carry that all the way through, and where there's stuff that needs to be cleaned up, we gotta clean it up and move forward, all in the way of truth and wisdom. Make sense? That okay? Everybody all right? Any questions? Eleven o'clock. That's good. Anything, you sure? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's... The question is, are there times when you should refrain from speaking the truth? Or what about discernment or discerning proper times to speak the truth? There certainly are. That's not the question James is asking, though. James is asking the question, why is this community not given to the truth? So his encouragement is, you better be honest, folks. Now, in different communities or different settings or different epistles, could that be a question? It certainly could be. That's probably not the question James is asking. The short answer is yes, but not for James. Yeah? Um, I think it's helpful when asking a question like that to go back to the comment that you expect nothing in return. Yeah. Exactly. So don't when you say expect nothing, not only in the way of praise for what you said, right. but don't expect any kind of reaction. Exactly right. And this and don't and don't you know don't take what I'm saying as you know, sometimes the problem with Lutherans are very, in a sense, very good with the truth, but sometimes we just hammer people over the head with it. That's not what James is saying. You remember he says Truth first, but gentleness and meekness. I mean, that, that impacts, as I say in here, that impacts the delivery of the truth. My point, what I tried to push very hard here was, don't let meekness and love and gentleness trump the truth itself, okay? You still need to deliver the truth, you need to be honest folks, but you don't just hammer people over the head with it. So you're right, expect nothing in return, and also be cognizant of who they are and how precisely they need to be loved. They need the truth, but they need a truth in a certain way, okay? Anything else? Good Phil, bad Phil? Good Phil today, that's good. All right, here we go, let's pray and we'll move on. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread,